if we allow the world to decide what choices we make, we will end up being unhappy. So we have to be able to self-reference and say, what would make me happy? What is something that would make my life spectacular? What is something that would make, um, if I were to look into the future, would make me feel uh, like I have no regrets, you know, looking at regret minimization and, and really crafting it around yourself. Dr. Julie Gerner, thank you for coming on the podcast. Really excited to talk to you and uncover a little bit of your ideas and your stories here today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Do not wait for a coronation. The greatest emperors crown themselves. This has never been more true. You get to decide exactly who you want to be. Just do the work, back it up, and make it a reality. Do not wait for others. Crown yourself. What does this concept mean? For me, you know, the concept of crowning yourself is something that comes from um, an older concept that, you know, you can really bring into modern day, which is that, you know, people can largely determine their own fate. They can decide who they want to be. And certainly in the age of kind of internet and self-creation and self-branding, people can really position themselves any way they wish. And certainly whether you're starting a company or you're someone who is in the creation space or that you're someone, you know, really aiming for a certain position, I think that you can see examples throughout history of people who decided who they wanted to be and kind of took that on for themselves and then did the work to meet that moment. I remember, um, you know, kind of a controversial figure, I guess, Howard Stern. Uh, he declared himself the king of all media long before he was actually the king of all media. He remember, I remember hearing a story where he said he was just going to call himself this thing and, you know, eventually other people would call him that. And that's exactly what happened. He ended up going on a talk show. Uh, some other people referred to him as that and kind of it really stuck and it really took. And I think that in this age, uh, you'll see that with people who give themselves screen names uh, you'll see it with how people decide to brand themselves and how people refer to them uh, later on. It's never been more true. And I think if you set that mark and you set that line and you're able to live up to it, it almost seems like um, a way of which you position yourself for your own best hopes. And waiting around, I think, for people to call you something, uh, for people to decide your fate for you, is something that, you know, uh, will stall your progress and certainly slow you down. Well, I noticed that it was in your bio, crown yourself. And yeah, I was curious, is that something you struggled with in the past? It, was that a particular concept you've seen other people deal with and that it really hit them? Like, why is that in your bio? I think that the overarching theme of a lot of what I do and a lot of things that I put out there are about people being able to reach their potential and unlock their own ability to reach the places they want to go. And for me, you know, you see it in the work of artists where, um, you know, they, there are certain Basquiat, for example, has a crown in a lot of his art, uh, about, um, and, and in the interpretations there. I feel very much, uh, that in, in my own bio, that people who want to reach a certain level of achievement have the ability to do that. They just have to reach into themselves and find the ability to kind of dig into that self-belief. And I think that requires knowing who you are long before anybody else knows it. And so that's really the concept of crowning yourself. What gets in people's ways when they are trying to crown themselves, but they don't? Like, why don't people do that? To me, I feel like it's a natural thing, a natural concept, but I see it, people struggle with that, generally speaking. Why, why do people struggle with that? I think that people naturally, a lot of people naturally have an external reference point instead of an internal one. Uh, mm -hmm. A lot of people, when they compare themselves to others, that's when they become hesitant to make these proclamations about themselves. You'll hear them say things like, who am I to make this proclamation? Who am I to begin this process? Or who am I? Um, but people who have a self-reference point and kind of are internally refer referencing 
don't really look outside of themselves to see what they can do. They know internally and they reference internally what they feel they are capable of, and they can really stand in that. So I think that where we see the first challenge, I think there's a few different challenges, but the first challenge is really when people externally reference rather than internally reference. And when you internally reference your capabilities instead of using it, doing some type of comparison, that's really a starting point to being able to kick off in really powerful ways. Underlying a lot of the traits that we um, kind of ascribe to successful people are things like self-belief, internal reference points, things like that. So for example, we'll say, oh, this person is relentlessly resourceful. But in order to be resourceful or audacious or autodidactic, where you're teaching yourself things, you have to believe that you're capable. And so to have that self-knowledge is really an internal reference point. It's not saying I'm capable compared to X or compared to Y, because those people you're comparing yourself to are likely very public people who have already achieved things and have already gone that path. It's kind of an unfair comparison point and just makes people feel badly about themselves. Um, so the internal reference point is where everything starts. And I think it's also a part of the struggle to crown themselves. What was the first moment in your life where you felt like you had an internal reference point? I think that some people have always been more internally uh, referenced than externally. And I think I'm one of those people. I grew up on a farm, so I didn't have a lot of external reference points. We, um, you know, cleaned a lot of horse stalls and did a lot of farm chores. And, you know, you do a lot of work on a farm. And so for me, I think that comparing myself to others wasn't really on my radar. And I didn't grow up at a time where social media existed. So I think that that was incredibly beneficial for me. Um, I saw hard work. I was mostly focused on my schoolwork and, you know, farm work and later playing a sport. And so I didn't really have that comparative point that maybe other people have, or maybe people grow up with today. You mentioned growing up on a farm, and I've heard you talk about that in previous podcasts as well. Sure. What do you learn? Like, what was that like? What was that experience like? And how has that informed some of the work you do today? Well, I'm at my farm today, so it's a very different type of farm. But I do, um, I referenced that early experience because I think if you know a farmer, they are the hardest workers you probably have met. They work with their hands. There's no excuses. You're out there doing things. And, you know, you're driving a tractor when you're eight. There is no can't figure it out. You have to figure out everything. Um, you figure out how to fix things. You figure out how to grow certain things, how to make do with things. Um, there is a lot of resourcefulness and a lot of hard work that is just part and parcel to the expectations you have growing up in that environment. I think it was enormously beneficial because no matter who you are, you know, you're a boy, you're a girl, you work hard, you do the same basic uh, chores and uh, you're always outside and you really recognize, you know, the importance of what everybody in the world, uh, you know, kind of does in physical labor, you also learn very quickly that it may or may not be a life that uh, is something that you want for yourself as far as that kind of hard work. People hard work very, very hard sometimes for very little. And, um, and so it certainly informs, you know, where you want to go and what you want to have and how you want to mold your own future. What about psychologically? Like, were there any particular lessons or stories that you learned growing up on a farm that helped you realize, oh, I have a, a unique gift for understanding people's minds? I think that on the farm, I really didn't think a lot about psychology as much. Um, I was very interested. I've, I've always been a very meticulous person. I was the person who like took apart my dad's watch um, and couldn't put it back together although I wanted to put it back together. Uh, but I did, um, you know, kind of these little things. I was really interested in, you know, electronics. I was very interested in um, very meticulous aspects, even of kind of more farm work. And so for me, I knew that I found great joy in the small things and kind of making small shifts, putting small things together uh, initially, I thought I wanted to be a surgeon because it was something that I found I could concentrate for hours on something that was really small minutia. And other people, you know, maybe focus more on large scale things. I was very, very honed into very small scale things. 
But psychology really didn't come into play until I got to college. And I was taking pre-med courses, thinking I was going to go and be a surgeon. Um, and, you know, the, the medical pre-med courses were really dry to me. They were really boring. And although I did well in them, I found them not inspiring. I ended up um, taking a philosophy course, and I fell in love with philosophy. I loved philosophy. And then I was like, I can't just sit on a hillside and be a philosopher. You have to do something practical with this. And so psychology really bridged my love of science uh, with my love of philosophy in a way that was very tangible and applicable. And I ended up uh, kind of taking that path and really loving it. You mentioned college. Who is Jeffrey Magnavita? Ah, Jeffrey Magnavita is someone in grad school who was, uh, he was just a a visiting uh, professor of ours. And he wrote the book called Restructuring Personality Disorders. Um, It ended up being an incredibly impactful book for me and an incredibly impactful class At the time, I was, you know, my area of specialization is adult psychopathology and forensics. So, you know, you really, in forensics and in adult psychopathology, you focus very, very heavily on personality structure. And his work is really, you know, kind of world-renowned for being able to take apart people's personalities and restructure them in more functional ways. I mean, he's incredible in how he's able to do this. Uh, and he does it at an incredibly high level. He's a really intense guy. I was able to, um, you know, kind of take his course and, and work very closely with him in that way and learn so much about how he can literally get people's personalities who have certain challenges in them and kind of work with the pieces almost in a surgical way. Um, and so that really fascinated me. And I took a real deep dive into those types of, uh, topics and, I found them incredibly useful, even as I started psychology very traditionally. I mean, that's like, I believe one of the most important things we have to think about as humans is like, we have this personality either that we've been given or that we've been living with and created. And now we have to figure out a way to restructure it to map to the environment that we're in so that we can get the best possible outcomes for our life. That is like what I've devoted this podcast to in some way, which is like, this is the most important thing. How are more people not talking about this? Like the mind, and I think the mind plays a huge part in that and understanding the mind and understanding our own psychology. And so I guess when you look at the person who took that course and was reading that book uh, back in college versus the person you are today, what is the difference in your knowledge of restructuring personalities and restructuring the mind to help people achieve better outcomes? What a phenomenal question. Like that is, that is a really insightful question. So at that time, I was studying it really to get people from a place of illness to health, right? A very different framework. And now I look at people who are incredibly healthy. I don't do therapy. Uh, So these are people who are incredibly healthy, but may have, you know, these little quirks, little sticking points, little areas that could be released or unlocked. And I'm able to kind of use that same knowledge to dive in, make those little adjustments and have them continue on their way to be more optimal than where they're at currently. So we have, you know, stacks of research in psychology that are all focused toward people who are ill or struggling or have some larger scale problems. But what we haven't really realized, and I think the science really hasn't caught up, is how we can use those stacks of research and information to use it with healthy people who may have these little sticking points that, you know, don't require therapy. They're not somebody who's, you know, diagnosable in any way, but that you can just kind of make these small adjustments that allow people to really run. And that is something that I think the current version of myself is far more capable of and sees the potential of that the person sitting in that classroom certainly didn't see. And I, um, I, I find it's why I spend every morning, I spend an hour reading research alone. It's part of my own practice because I'm looking for ways to start creating more of my own models of how I can apply 
you know, that research to the work that I do every day in kind of these small ways that underlie themes that I see on a regular basis. So I'm always almost trying to form models and think about ways in which I can apply that knowledge and that understanding to, you know, the work that I do today to make me better, to make my clients more optimal, and to help people move further faster. What are one or two of those small tweaks that somebody listening right now could make to live a better life, to live a life that is more in alignment with the person that they in their core want to be? So the concept that um, it seems to really resonate with a lot of people is one of uh, imaginary rules. You and I uh, had chatted a bit uh, prior to this, but the concept of imaginary rules is really that as we grow up, as we develop, you know, we are surrounded by certain people, certain environments, certain uh, kind of ecosystems that reinforce not just the good rules that we learn. For example, you know, the good manners that we have, um, the moral compass that we develop, but they're, you know, reinforcing what is possible for us. They are giving us a narrative about who we are and what we can achieve and what we can do that most people will end up adhering to. You know, if you look back at your high school, what did they do with their lives? What kind of careers did they end up choosing? There's kind of this really interesting range, and then there's going to be a few outliers. And so for the people who are in that narrative, you know, people will say travel, get out, have conversations with other people, because those are the things that start changing the way we see the world and it changes the way we see ourselves and what is possible. If these individuals who are growing up and ingesting these narratives, there are certain things about the rooms they belong in, the kind of conversations they should have, the kind of money they can make. Um, and so to me, these are very, I, I call them imaginary rules because I think that people operate according to them and it ends up limiting their life. And this happens to people in early stages but surprisingly, it happens in later stages, too, where people will say, oh, doing this would be greedy or doing this would be, um, you know, uh, this is an it should be enough or that there should be, um, oh, you know, I don't know that I should take this kind of risk or they don't want to do certain other things. What I'm hoping is that when people can look at their life and they look at their experiences, that they aren't setting artificial ceilings on who they can become because of what they've seen and ingested about their environment or who they are or what they're capable of. And, you know, parents are doing the best that they can, but often, you know, they are giving you advice that is applicable from the world that they know. And so it's not that it's poorly intended. Even your friends are not always poorly intended, but they're often very limit limiting because of the limited span and kind of surface area that they have in the world. So that's one area of looking at personal narrative, looking at, at psychology in that way to kind of begin to unlock how do people look at what's possible? Because I hear all the time, you know, if you are on Twitter, uh, you'll see that people will say, oh, you know, every wealthy person has exploited others or like these, these, these themes that come up um, that are not necessarily true. And these are all coming from narratives, stories that they've heard. Um, and if you think that way, uh, you're actually pushing against the thing that could really benefit your life. How do you think the internet's changed imaginary rules? Like now all of a sudden we have way more examples of what is possible in the okay. world than, oh, wow, look at this person doing this and look at that. Like, that, that to me is really exciting because of how many imaginary rules I feel like might get broken or might have been broken in the past 10, 20 years. I agree. I think the internet has done two things. It's, it's increased exposure, but hidden methods, right? Like if you mm. see the Kardashians, it, they have incredible wealth and they've done incredible things around, uh, you know, Kris Jenner was a, an airline stewardess at one point, right? So she certainly has had quite a journey, but what you don't see are all of the uh, the work the work behind the scenes and what it takes to reach those levels. And so people have the assumption that if I just you know kind of do brand partnerships, I'll become you know just like this. Like they kind of don't see the work it takes to get to some of those outcomes. So now they see the outcome is possible, 
But I think that the actual work in between becomes very uh, dejecting for them, very hard, very challenging, because that's the stuff that's hidden. Nobody is documenting, you know, the real work it takes to, you know, if for eight years or seven years or 10 years to get to a certain point, it looks like, you know, they've been successful this entire time. You know, Gary Vee is a great example where, you know, he's making videos on YouTube that nobody watches for a very long time in his 30s, I believe. Um, and now, you know, certainly he's doing incredible things. He's reached incredible heights. He continues to go. And one day that guy's going to buy the Jets. So I do think that, um, you know, we miss it. the work is often excluded. And so people are also tempted to falsify their lives, right? Because they want to kind of show that they're also a part of this um, this wealth or this achievement, but they really haven't earned it. And uh, I think it creates a lot of emptiness in people's lives and feelings of emptiness um, because they can't back it up. I think there's something very destructive about uh, becoming a, a kind of a false um, reflection of something that you don't have. It makes, it, it really does make people struggle. But yeah. And I mean, putting yourself out on the internet is something that we are the first people to ever do. And that's yeah. like a, a kind of crazy thing, if you think about it, where you're creating a reflection of yourself that is hopefully as in alignment with the person that you are. But if it's not, it will cause you psychic disarm. Like this, like you will be harmed by that reality. And uh, I think that we don't spend a lot of time thinking about how our reality will be different when we present a different reality of ourselves on the internet than what actually exists in our heart. I, I agree with you. I think that as we put ourselves online, we have to be very intentional about how we do that so that it is the truest reflection of ourselves. Um, but what's really fascinating to me are the people who have strategies that make it work for them and protect themselves in the process. So for example, someone who is fairly well known that I had worked with in the past said that they are intentional to present online and on social media a version of themselves that is true, but that they keep back an entire portion of themselves that is not uh, online at all. And they do that intentionally so that when someone criticizes them, that it's like, well, you don't even really know me. Whereas if you put everything out there and someone criticizes you, it can feel like kind of a, a wound of sorts. But there's a separation that we have to have where we say, okay, this is, this is me authentically, but it's only a part of me. And the rest of myself that is precious and, you know, something that is more tender or authentic that, you know, I want to keep solely for me. And being able to do that is very protective, but also allows you a lot of room to push forward. People, you know, should have something behind the veil uh, so that they have something intimate for their friends and partners and whomever uh, in the world can get a certain piece of you. And then the rest uh, should stay with, you know, your home life and, and other places that you might want to be. Yeah. It is interesting, though, that every year people feel more and more comfortable sharing more aspects yeah. of themselves. And I always think about like, at what cost is that? And maybe the yeah. next generation will grow up where everything is online. But personally, I just don't feel comfortable doing that. And I can imagine that there might be some regret with sharing everything, or it might just be normal. And that's just the way <laughs> the world works. But I think that there is an there is an epidemic of loneliness that I think prompts people to want to share and connect with people online when they are not able to connect with people in the real world for whatever reason. And most of our relationships, uh, even most of our dating relationships are now found online. So I do think that people put themselves out there with good intention, but it does put them more at risk of being, you know, kind of injured or, you know, feeling left when people do not treat them in the way that they hoped uh, to be received. You mentioned uh, imaginary rules before, and I'm curious, what is an example of what, an imaginary rule you had that a few months, years later down the line, you realize like, oh, that was just a rule I was making up in my head? So I think that an imaginary rule I had was what a wealthy person looked like. Um, I thought 
you know, growing up on a farm, you don't see in rural kind of Pennsylvania, you don't see a lot of truly wealthy people. So I thought that a wealthy person was like a physician. That was a wealthy person. Um, and, you know, certainly as I went to grad school and, you know, the Gold Coast of Connecticut has a lot of uh, incredible homes, incredible people, you start to see that, you know, not only is the wealthy person probably not a physician, although they do quite well, um, and some can do very well, but that, you know, wealth is not rare. It is not uncommon. It is not unreachable. It is not held only by certain people that, you know, and I, I remember going to, uh, I was invited to go to uh, a Yankees game and I sat next to a guy who invented an app that, um, you know, he made millions of dollars on this app. And I, and I remember just thinking to myself, it's so funny how if you bring those stories back, and you start telling people like, yeah, you know, you can make millions of dollars creating this app. You know, there are still people who believe that that isn't a path to wealth, right? That you could only do this through certain uh, areas. And so I think that my lens certainly had shifted from, you know, growing up in rural Pennsylvania to, you know, going to even graduate school and seeing, you know, more people and, and getting more exposure, it certainly has been beneficial for me and it continues to be beneficial. You know, it's, um, I think that expanding your range and expanding your lens and speaking with different people, you start to see what is possible and it makes you play bigger knowing that it's not unique. That, that makes sense. <laughs> when you think about the clients that you work with today, some of the wealthiest people and so I assume that their imaginary rules aren't around money. What are no. their imaginary rules typically around? I think that their imaginary rules begin to be around other things. So, for example, you know, a lot of times you almost have to remind people of the impact that they can have. I have uh, I've had people who have had very significant exits, for example, who are, are like, what can I, what can I do now? What is kind of, what's something I can do next? You know, you make, uh, you know, a, almost a billion dollars on something or, you know, something that hundreds of millions of dollars. And you, you kind of have this, um, the unlimited choices. And so it, it really almost feels quite paralyzing, but you don't realize that the person who had this large exit is, is you and that this money actually is something that you can use to make a big, impact in society. I think people forget that. So I think the imaginary rule there is like, I'm still just a founder or I'm just a CEO or I'm just a what have you. And they forget that like, you know, if you wanted to, you could build a hospital in XYZ and have incredible impact. You could, you know, if there's a cause that you believe in, you can actually, you have the resources to create change. Like you can really take yourself now to another level of operation where you can impact millions and, you know, millions of people, you can impact their health, you can impact, you know, a species, if you're really interested in a certain animal or population, you can impact disease, you can impact, like, the levels of impact, I think, are still an area where people feel like, oh, me, I, I can do that. Uh, mm -hmm. And the resources that they have, I think, are surprising even to them. And many operate very similarly, um, to kind of when they didn't have quite as much. I mean, a lot of them have been doing well for a very long time. So having an exit like that isn't really going to change the style of life much depending on what their situation is. You know, if they, if the company, they own the company versus, you know, it's funded. I mean, there's a lot of dynamics that would go into that. But um, yeah, I think they still need to be reminded of impact, who they are, what they can do, what they can influence. And it becomes incredibly empowering. What comes to mind for me when you say that is that there are more options on the table than what they realize. And I think that's true for all of us often. We don't think about all of the options that we actually have. Sometimes having all of the options can be freeing and exciting. Sometimes it could be overwhelming of like, I don't know what to do now. I have a hundred options. So how do you think about helping people navigate through a lot of different options since that seems to be the world that we operate in more options than ever. And, uh, no one really gave us the blueprint for how to deal with all of these options. We're now presented. We have a lot of choices and 
if we allow the world to decide what choices we make, we will end up being unhappy. So we have to be able to self-reference and say, what would make me happy? What is something that would make my life spectacular? What is something that would make, um, if I were to look into the future, would make me feel uh, like I have no regrets, you know, looking at regret minimization and and really crafting it around yourself. Uh, people will do a lot of things, you know, to show others. And that's kind of a terrible way to operate. Instead, why not do something that genuinely reflects what would make you proud of yourself and what would make you happy and would light you on fire and make you excited? Because that's going to look different for every single person that you speak with. You know, some people are going to say, you know what, houses don't matter to me, but man, I would love to have a vintage uh, whatever car or somebody will really love a lot, love watches and some like, people don't care about any material things and they just want a cabin in the woods and the totally like bug out and that's like have a quad and that's their life and they're excited about that. So I think if you cannot judge what comes natural to you and what you love and aim toward that thing, in a world of unlimited options, you can probably find your way there if you can get clear and stay true to that vision you have for yourself and not reference other people in the process. If you can do that, you're on a path to do something that really will make you happy. And, you know, maybe your exit is, you know, having an exit for five or $10 million is still incredible. People look at that today and they'll say, oh, you know, like, you know, but it's not this or it's not that. And it's still life-changing money. And you can, depending on who you are, that can be enough. I think that there are a lot of people who are playing a game that isn't theirs. Um, and so they end up completely frustrated and unhappy. It's hard because other people are people you respect often and people who seemingly have the best interest for you. But it's like, if that's not calling to your heart, like it's, it's really difficult. I mean, I personally dealt with this where I knew in my heart going to college wasn't going to give me the most growth and the most happiness, but my parents were paying for it. So I was like, all right. And it's there. Like, that seems like a good idea that is like worthy to do. So like, let me do that. But I knew like, really, if I thought about it, I, I just didn't want the responsibility. And so I guess like with these difficult decisions that really impact us at a deep level, like it's often when you follow your heart, it's, it's often hurting somebody close to you. So I how do you interesting framing like, that's, I'm going to push back on that because I think that's really interesting framing. I don't know that you're, you're hurting them. I think that how they interpret your truth is challenging for them. And you don't yeah. want to see them being challenged in that way. Yeah. Um, we all want to rescue people from negative experiences if we feel we can help them avoid it. And, but doing that puts us in a position to change our lives in ways that we take on burdens that we shouldn't. And it ends up, you know, damaging us and we're taking on damage for other people's, you know, experience. Um, if you look at people in the world who have done things that are, you know, great, one common thread that they all have is that they are okay being uniquely themselves at the end of the day, you know, um, and they're not all the same. You know, you do see people like, you know, Jeff Bezos, who was valedictorian, went to school and loved it. You see people like Gary Vee, who wasn't somebody who was went, meant for college and it wasn't for him and he did incredible stuff. So I do think that there, you have to find your own way. And if we are, you know, there's a distinction that I tend to make between being nice and being good. And, you know, people who are nice, it's often inauthentic because we are inherently taking on things for other people's emotional rescuing, right? Like we don't want to make them uncomfortable. So we're just going to be nice, even if it's not true or not authentic to us. Whereas good people, you know, you do have a line and you want the best for other people, but you also are going to to take stands and draw lines and be authentic to yourself and your own compass. And sometimes that means having hard conversations. It doesn't mean that you're a jerk, 
but it means that you're not going to take on a kind of inauthenticity to spare somebody else. In doing that, you know, you're keeping yourself shackled and kind of burdened in ways that um, are unfair to you personally. Yeah, that, that's really well said. And I guess the question becomes then, how do we get better at one, listening to that internal compass and two, then having those difficult conversations? Yeah, I, there's something, there's a concept that I like called a uh, fight up front. And if you do it right, hope, hopefully it's not a fight, but that you have hard conversations as early as possible because it rescues you from the challenge of having them later. Uh, if you let things go on, they end up getting more and more mired. They end up taking on lives of their own uh, and they become much harder conversations to have. But let's just say that there is somebody who struggles with a path that, you know, they, they know deep down they want to take, but maybe their parents, maybe other people really don't see it. To begin to plant those seeds early, like, hey, I'm really interested in this. Look at what I'm creating, looping people in, showing people what you're working on, um, you know, kind of being able to start having those conversations as early as humanly possible at least sets the stage so that you can continue having those conversations and it's not a shock. You're not going along with an, somebody else's kind of storyline and then all of a sudden you kind of doesn't feel right to do the next step. And now you feel like you're almost, you have to because you've been playing this game for so long. It's almost a sense of obligation. So I hope that people don't feel obligated to play somebody else's game when they're really clear about what the game is for themselves and that they can stand in that, take some chances and take some risks and see where it goes and try to get other people on board if they genuinely care about you. Um, other people are, you know, there are some people, you know, maybe friends or, or former friends who don't genuinely care for your well-being, but they kind of care about reinforcing their own um, beliefs about the way that things should be, what you should be doing. For example, a lot of times I find early on in people's journey, they'll have groups of people who expect them to go out with them or do things with them. And, you know, you have a certain other priority that you're working on and you want to do. Um, eventually, those people will either respect it stop asking, support you. Some people get angry about it and just cut you out. And that's okay. I mean, you have to be okay standing in your truth, knowing that what comes will be what is meant for you. Are there any particular examples from your own life where you were going for a new reality for yourself and thus the people that you were spending in your old reality were asking you, why won't you come out with us? Or, or how can, like, why are you doing this? Like, do, do any examples come to mind for you? Yeah. I In my own life, I was a very focused and serious student. Um, I wasn't the person who was, uh, I was fine, you know, having fun and going out from time to time, but I wasn't going to, for example, I knew during college I was not going to get married. It, it just, I had other things that were my priority. I knew I wasn't going to be in a committed relationship. I knew that, um, I had certain goals that I wanted to achieve and that anything that could derail me from those goals was not going to be a priority in my life. Um, and so I, you know, made a lot of conscious decisions. I was very forthright with people. Um, and then as I went to grad school, kind of continued this trajectory. There were things that I wanted for myself and I made certain choices around for example, in graduate school, I lived in a woman's attic. It wasn't even really an apartment. Um, it was this, um, she was a single mom and she had a couple of uh, older kids, um, but she was just trying to make ends meet. And so, you know, whenever her neighbors would report her or something, I'd like move all my stuff down. Um, and we'd pretend that I didn't have this like basically apartment set up in an attic of her home. It was wild. Um, but you know, I I was there for like $200 a month. I'm spending like $10 a week on groceries. And, you know, like it's, you're doing what you have to do to make things happen. But graduate school was incredibly important to me. And, you know, I'm still working jobs and trying to get through things. So you do what you have to do to get where you need to be. But on the other end of that, when you're living on that kind of budget, you know, you don't have the cash to go out 
and do all these other things. You know, you're buying your clothes at thrift stores or Marshalls or what have you. You're not, um, you're not, you don't have a car payment that is, um, what other people can afford. Uh, at one point, my car, I wasn't getting it and, you know, I just bought it. Um, and I was, you know, driving a car that wasn't inspected. I put a bike rack on it so people couldn't see it wasn't inspected. And I drove that thing for years. So like, we all do what we have to do to get where we need to be. We don't start out where we end up, but you have to have the belief that, you know, you take it on as a challenge. And that's the the key to it really is I think instead of seeing it like, oh, you know, I am, uh, you know, I am not as wealthy as other people going to graduate school, or I am not in the position other people are in. You know, so what? Take it on as a challenge, knock them out of the water, like really focus in. And that kind of resolve oftentimes kind of laps other people's um, ability to not be able to do the hard things. I mean, I can do hard things. And I think that my from my time in, you know, be, from being on a farm, to going through grad school and and kind of living on a very shoestring budget. That's something I've always known about myself. So I've never been afraid to fail. What what are they going to do? Am I going to have to live in an attic again? Okay, I can do that. You've said before that discipline is not an effective long-term strategy. How does that relate to you living in an attic and grinding your way through graduate school? I have always felt, I have always felt pulled I think that the most successful people that I work with feel pulled and compelled to do what they do. They are obsessed. You do not have to push them. They don't have to exert a lot of discipline. In fact, you know, if I were to say on a weekend, do they need to be disciplined? No, they need to turn off. Like I want to get an off switch for some folks right? Where I could say, look, I just want to give you a break for like six hours, okay? Just six. Um, But that's really, I think we think about discipline as pushing, pushing, pushing. When people are pushing, they are draining energy. Pushing Mm -hmm. is energy intensive. But when you are pulled, you are ignited. You are excited. You are building energy. And it's a force. So I always hope that, you know, we talk a lot about discipline, I think, because it feels very tough to do. But when things are pulling us, you know, whether it's our fitness or it is our, you know, work in the world or it's what we want to achieve or it's the vision we have for ourselves or, hey, even if it's the person you're dating, you don't have to say, oh, man, I have to go on this date. Like if you're if you're you have to be disciplined to go on a date. That is not the date for you. And I feel the same way about work. If you are have to be really disciplined, you may have to do that at a job temporarily to get where you want to go. But when you start to get into your zone, kind of like you with your podcast, I'm betting you you seem to love what you do. And no one says, oh, man, I have to show up for this interview. You know, like you're excited about it. You want to have a conversation uh, so when people are pulled and compelled and obsessed, they have a great infectious energy. And so discipline, as much as we like to talk about it, discipline is for strategic times. You know, when we have a bad day and we have to push through it, everyone has bad days. When we're trying to get back into a habit and we've kind of fallen off the wagon, oh, you know, we were sick maybe for a week and now we have to get back to the gym and it's hard to get motivated. Or you know, sometimes we need discipline for things that we genuinely don't want to do. Even if you love your job and love your life, there are things you hate, you know, like maybe you don't like getting your tax papers together and you have to do that. So there are always things that we're going to need discipline for, but it should never be your primary method of making a career happen, or you will never be as great as those who are obsessed, energized, and feel internally pulled. Yeah. One thing that I think about often is when I was stuck in my life doing something that externally was seemed cool and I, I had a job working for people, choosing my own schedule, what I would do when I was procrastinating was I would watch podcasts. And I didn't know that that had any connection to what I actually wanted to do in my heart. But I think if somebody's listening to this right now, you know, Ask yourself, like, am I procrastinating doing something that I'm 
supposed to be doing? And if so, is it because I'm interested in the mind? Is it I'm interested in media? Is it I'm interested? There's something in this conversation, if you are procrastinating, that is hooking you. And there's a reason for that. And so I, I often think about like, how do you make your procrastination time, quote unquote, more and more of your real life? Does that resonate yeah. with you? It does resonate with me. I think that's fantastic. I mean, what a great insight is that the things that you're naturally drawing toward are the things that perhaps hold a lot more than just a casual interest. And if you can make those things something that you incorporate into your day-to-day life, and they're that captivating, they're that exciting, they're that interesting to you, I mean, your everyday life is going to be a whole lot better in its caliber and what it brings to the table for you. And you might end up being fairly good at it. So it's a really great insight, I think. I appreciate that. You retweeted one of my tweets about winning. I said, winners expect to win. And I was quoting Elite Minds by Dr. Stan Beecham, where he said, if you don't expect to win, then you have disqualified yourself before the event even begins. You have handicapped yourself out of having a fair chance to win, and you have given the field a head start and unfair advantage. Now, you don't retweet too many tweets, so I I figured that it must have resonated with you at a deep level. What about that tweet resonated with you? Yeah, it definitely resonated. I don't know why people do anything if they don't expect to be to win at it. I, I just don't understand what the point would be. You know, whether you are, I, it, maybe it's for experience. It, it's just separated from how I think about the world and how a lot mm. of people I work with tend to think about the world. If you if you can't, like, if you're going to run a marketing campaign, are you going to choose to run something that you say, well, you know, this really doesn't have a great set, you know, chance of success, so I'm just going to run it? Of course not. You think this could be something that really resonates, so I'm going to run it. If you are going to do something, why do you want to do something that you can't be exceptional at? Um, it, to get through the day, to you know, just pay your bills. I guess that's a reason that people would use. But when you say winners expect to win, that deeply resonates because I I think that people who love what they do take things on that they want to um, you know they want to show something spectacular to the world and really win at. People who enter the U.S. Open, I think about tennis players, you know, every great tennis player is losing all the time, but they enter these competitions, they enter the U.S. Open or Wimbledon or what have you, because they expect that there is a chance, right? There's a chance that I'm going to really move up and move ahead and even, you know, challenge my abilities and I really have a shot. Um, an unseated player recently won uh, the U.S. Open, you know, somebody who didn't have any ranking. It's really spectacular. So I do think that we can prove ourselves out. Uh, and when we prove ourselves out, it's an incredible confidence boost and allows us to take chances in other areas too. You know, when we win in one area, it helps us to win in others and develop confidence to take risks in other places, which is why when people are struggling like with confidence in what they're doing, sometimes I'll, I'll, I'll tell people, hey, let's look at something outside of what you're currently doing where you can take on a challenge. You know, maybe you're a runner and uh, by nature and you, you just kind of were used to jogging, but what if you enter a 5K? And let's see if you can kind of complete that or have a certain time or something like this. People who take on challenges outside of work and develop some confidence tend to kind of bleed that into other areas of life. And it becomes something that, you know, one can kind of fuel the other a little bit. So our confidence matters. It matters in the risks we take. And when we don't take them, it tends to erode our confidence. You know, hesitation erodes confidence um, because we watch people doing things that we wish we were doing or now feel like we should have done and we're behind. Um, so I'm a big fan of, you know, playing to win, really laying it out there and seeing what can happen. I do believe at the end of the day, people are not afraid of failing. They are afraid of failing in front of others. And that, you know, we can take a hit if we're, if we're okay with, you know, the consequences of our actions. But I do think there's that external focus that prevents a lot of people from just laying things out there and going for broke. And perhaps they shouldn't allow themselves to be held back by what someone else might do or say, um, because that's the path of everyone on their way up. If you know you can't avoid criticism, you can't avoid people heckling you, you can't avoid you know people saying mean things to you. 
uh, it's going to happen. So you might as well be successful and have it happen rather than staying small and having it happen. I guess the choice is yours. How do we get better at that skill of caring less about what other people think when we fail? A good strategy is always to choose the people who matter most to you and really being deliberate about that. Whose, pe- whose opinion really matters to you? Um, you know, for most people, it may be like their spouse, their kids, uh, maybe a business partner, maybe not. But that circle should be incredibly small because you don't want to not care about what anyone thinks because then you become a jerk, right? You don't care about what your wife thinks. You don't care about, you know, what your kids think. I mean, that's really not going to take you down a great path in life. So you do want to be very deliberate and make a choice as to who the people are that matter most. And then with those people kind of on your side, win or lose, succeed or fail, um, you just go for it. And whatever happens, the chips fall, they fall. And you kind of remind yourself of who really matters. Because at the end of the day, the people who do matter most are probably not the ones who even care if you fail. Um You know, they'll be the ones who go, oh, man, that really sucks. They'll commiserate with you. They'll be there for you. Um, But they're not going to ridicule you. Those aren't the people who really care about you uh, that will ever take that that path. So be really specific about who matters and who doesn't. Take chances and just kind of remind yourself of the circle that matters and doesn't and uh, let the chips fall where they may. How do you find or figure out, like, what is essential to one's being? So the way in which I think about how to figure out what's essential to who you are is to really look at your core elements of identity. If I were to say, who are you? And you go to a mirror right now as an adult and you look in the mirror and I go, who are you? And you go, well, I'm somebody's son. I am a podcaster or an interviewer. Um, I am, I mean, there should be many things that these labels bring up. I'm a passionate guy. I am curious. I, you know, but there are probably a lot of different labels that we can begin to, that you will begin to assign yourself. And I look at those self, um, the way in which you assign yourself who you are as being kind of core elements that will define you to yourself. And if one of those elements for you is that, for example, you are a podcaster or I am an interviewer. In fact, you may define yourself differently. Maybe you say you're, you're an interviewer and not a podcaster, whatever it is. But um, it tells me a lot about how that person sees what is core to who they are. And then from that point, how they derive their sense of self, their identity, their strength, their energy, their power, where they feel good about themselves. Um, and how they think uh, about themselves in the world. I want to lean on those things all day long. So if you love and you see yourself as being like, you know, at my best, I am uh, interviewing smart people. I am, you know, able to connect with large audiences. I am, you know, able to have a regular routine at the gym where I feel good about my body, whatever it is. I want you, I want to make sure that whatever work that we would ever do, um, or whatever things that, um, we would ever take on, that these are core elements that we keep close to you, that we dig into and that we lean on all the time. So your power, and in fact, I would try to pull you out of things that aren't in alignment with those things. So, you know, you being an interviewer and being in your space and your energy, I would want to pull you out of the things that are taking away that energy. So maybe, for example, there are elements of research that pull away from your energy. Maybe there are, you know, kind of the setup elements that pull or editing that pulls away from your energy that, you know, you have to do certain things around. So I would really try hard to push everything in your life toward the things that make you uh, just shine and where you see yourself as strong. And then we build from there. Because if we can do that, you're going to be a a force of nature, right? I mean, if all you're doing every day are things that you feel are in your zone, that are your identity, that make you really excited and passionate, how do you, how do you take away from that guy? Like he's a monster, like in a good way. 
Um, so that's kind of the element that I look for in every single person. And it's going to be different, right? Like some people, they could care less about other things, but I'm not, I'm not here to judge them. I don't care. Whatever it is that works for you, I want to make sure that you can sit there and just drive that machine. It's really interesting because I was listening to Stephen Bartlett's uh, Diary of, of a CEO, but behind the scenes version where he was, he was interviewing somebody for a, a job. And this person had like 30 years of experience. And after the interview with this potential employee was over, he speaks to the camera and he basically says, as somebody goes further along in their career, they should have specialized in one specific thing that they've chiseled away to get closer and closer to that truth. And it reminded me of when you were talking about Gay Hendricks's zone of genius and he talks about it in The Big Leap for anyone who wants to read that because it, it's just like if you can get closer to your own zone of genius, you're inherently more joyous, excited, happy to be there, giving the best energy to other people. And I guess the question becomes if somebody's listening to this in their 20s and hasn't figured out their zone of genius, how do they go about finding that out? That's a great question. If you haven't found your zone of genius and you're young and early in your career, you want to expand your surface area. You want to try a lot of different things and see what hits, see what really feels good, what you're naturally very good at and gifted at, because you may not have found it yet. And, you know, some people don't find it until their 30s. That's fine. But once you find that thing, the rest of your professional life is really zoning in, tailoring down, and staying in that zone. A couple of reasons, though, for that, one is energy, as you mentioned. But the other thing is, let's just say that you are already above average in this thing. I mean, you're already above the curve. Your interest, your work in it is going to just make you go parabolic. If you're average or below average and we bring you like and you work really hard, maybe you'll get above average, right? But it's the people who are already starting out, you know, notches above the curve that when they put the work in, they just, you know, there's a hockey stick trajectory that people just can't catch. It makes you elite. And so that's the other reason that in my work, I'm going to lean on that all day long because I want the things that people are already great at, uh, I want them to do a little bit of extra work, extra time, extra effort so that that particular area of their life uh, can really be parabolic and can go in that direction they're not going to get there. You know, sometimes people will say, oh, you know, I have all these weaknesses and yeah, we'll bring those up to average. But I don't really want people to focus too much on their weaknesses. It's, you know, people gravitate toward that. It's it's a really biological function. Why? But we, we gravitate toward things that we're uh, insecure about or anxious about or we feel not very good at. And we spend a lot of time there. And I think that it does two things. One is it erodes your mental state because you see yourself as less than others, which is probably true. You probably are less than others in that area. And you know, that's fine. Um, and the second thing is that even with a lot of work, you're still not going to be as good as others. And that's going to erode your self-esteem, right? So like, I'll give you a really funny example. When I was a kid, I thought I was a really fast runner, right? Like I thought it was super fast. You know, when you're little and you think you can just fly, right? Like, and I remember in elementary school, our gym teacher did this thing. I was so stoked. And he says, I want you all to run a lap around the school. I was so excited. I thought I was going to win, right? Like I'm so, I'm just going to be first. I was almost last. Like it was embarrassing. I was not very good at that skill. And you know, today I'm not going to run any races. Why would I do that to myself? But I will do things like I did end up playing tennis. I was pretty good at tennis. I leaned into tennis. I was good at eye, eye hand coordination. I'm great at running. Not so great. Um, so there are things that, you know, we don't want to keep people running. If somebody said, hey, you know, you, because you're such a challenged runner, we're going to make you run every day. And every day I'm going to get lapped by these people who are great at running. And every day I'm going to have to deal with that. I mean, it's just going to destroy you over time. And so sometimes I'll see people reading books to bring up strength, to bring up weaknesses and things like this. And I think it's good to work on them and bring things up to average. But like I said, the real wins will come on the things you're already talented at. You're already above average because you spend the effort there and you become extraordinary. We see it with, you know, uh, athletes. 
We see it with, you know, the people who are naturally talented and put in the work. We see it with people who are in business. They're really, really talented deal makers, or they're really, really talented in one area. And so you just want to keep those people in those areas and just let them be extraordinary because they're already great at it. Um, and then they feel confident. They offer more to the company. They offer their careers get better. Um, and it feels like a cheat code and it also feels so, um, much more energizing to them, as you've mentioned. Okay. So one thing that I think about is like the person who doesn't know their zone of genius, but then there's another person who knows their zone of genius, but is unwilling for some reason to 10x their output, 10x their, their love for that thing. What would you say to that person who knows what they want and knows what they're good at, but is scared or unwilling to take it to the next level? Usually those are around areas of control, right? So people mm -hmm. want to hold on to all these other things that they're not great at for some reason or another. Maybe they feel it makes them look incapable. Like, uh, for example, I will have CEOs who aren't great people, pe people managers, and they'll mm -hmm. say, well, I should be the people manager because I'm the CEO. And I'll say, but it stresses you out. It drains you. You dislike it actively, right? So but they, they feel like they should be doing these things. So they'll hold on to them and it drains them so much that on the things that they're great at, by the time you get to those things, they're so tired and drained that they're not really, they don't really have the same amount of energy toward them than if they just kind of said, look, it's okay if you're not a great uh, manager of people or that people drain you or that people are particularly hard for you versus maybe some other leader. That's fine. Um, let's give that to somebody else. Let's hire somebody else in that kind of role and have them do all of that. And now you can lean into all this great stuff that you are amazing at. And, you know, I think that there's a lot of self-judgment. And when we say control, I think that people do desperately want to fit into a perception of what that role entails, Right. And I mean, there are some people who are CEOs who are terrible negotiators and should not be the person doing that job either. And that's okay. You don't have to be great at it. It's what serves the business best. We have to pull our own egos out of sometimes the work that we do to be able to see things objectively. Because when we don't, that's when we end up having this kind of emotional overlay in our decision making. Um, if you're judging yourself because you're not a great negotiator, or, you know, you're fooling yourself and, and wanting to be a great negotiator, but you know you're not, and deals don't work out when you're a part of them. Or, you know, you're not a great manager of people. I think getting honest about that makes everyone's life better, and it also makes the business better. You know, if people are being managed by somebody who really struggles with it, it's a harder experience for them, too. And it, it impacts the relationship you have with those people, because you're doing your best, but it's still not great. And then people who are high level, who've been managed well before they're struggling. And so it's like hard harming your relationship. You want people who, you know, you're going to put them in the best place to win by putting yourself in the best place to win and putting the company in this great place. It serves everybody. So being honest about that too is also a great model for other people to be candid about the things that like maybe you need some help with or that you're not great at, or maybe other people could do better. Um, I think it's a great model for other people. I'd love to have a you know leader and a lot of the people that I work with come to me because they're like, look, this is an area I'm not really great at. And this is, a, this is the area once we kind of get down to it that they are phenomenal at. And so it really gives us an opportunity to position them to where they're happier in what they do, but also more successful. And I think that that really is where you get uh, fantastic results. And then they don't feel guilty about it or bad about it anymore. But you have to get to the other side of that. It just seems like it's one small tweak that makes an extraordinary difference in their results and their well-being and their happiness. And I think that's the power that you give to people is like you could just change one little thing and you could have a huge impact on your life, your well-being. And uh, that that's really inspiring. I've learned a lot in this conversation and I like to end these podcasts asking the guests for a challenge. A challenge points to the place in your heart you believe somebody should take this conversation and actually do something with the information we talked about here today. Does a challenge come to mind? You know, that's a really, um, let me think about that for a moment. 
take your time. I guess that I would, I would, I would challenge people to gain clarity on what they truly want if they were just thinking about it for themselves, right? And they're not influenced by social media. They're not influenced by anyone else. Kind of building on our conversation today. Decide clearly what you really want. And then, you know, take a moment, do some journaling on a weekend and actually map a path, a kind of a progress chart to how you might get there and challenge yourself to do it. So if you're somebody who says, look, I just want to start a company. I mean, you can start small, start big, whatever it is, but really gain that clarity, step one and step two, map a path to it. My hope is that if you have that sitting in a notebook somewhere, I hope it eats at you if you do nothing about it. I hope that you have to sit with it and look at it as the years pass and nothing happens, that it inspires you to actually take action because you see that it is possible and that you can make that happen. So it's an easy challenge, but I hope it's one that sticks with you. That's beautiful. Thank you so much. And where can we send people to connect with you further? Thank you so much. Uh, if people want to connect with me further, I hope that they uh, go to the ultra successful newsletter on Substack. It's where we write about these concepts in much more depth. I actually have a weekly challenge where I'll challenge people to different concepts each and every week. So you can find me there. If you want to reach out on Twitter, I'm also there at, at Dr. Gerner. Um, and I look forward to connecting with anyone online. Awesome. All linked down below. And very active on Twitter as well. So you send Dr. Gurner a message. She might respond. That's true. Thank you so much. It does happen. Thank you so much, Danny.